the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. My wife and I were new to the Anglican tradition about 15 years ago when we attended a small Scottish Episcopal church in St. Andrews, Scotland. We fumbled around the prayer book and the leaflets trying to keep up with everyone else, and I think for the first, I don't know, month or so, we felt 30 seconds behind everybody else. Maybe some of you felt that way as well. I'm glad, by the way, for these new worship guides that we have. One thing I grew a deep affection for during this time was the public reading of Scripture. Even when those readings jolt us, like they do this morning. Um, back at our church in St. Andrews, I remember one particular morning when the gospel reading was a retelling of Jesus' vitriol against the Pharisees. It went something like this, uh, you whitewashed sepulchers, you house of dead men's bones. It was better that you were never born. And then the reading ended and we said, this is the word of the Lord, and we responded by saying, thanks be to God. And I found that liturgically funny. I thought, well, maybe... Maybe we should say thanks be to God, really. Or, you know, the hallelujahs that we heard so beautifully sung this morning. Maybe this is a new one we can work on together, Fred. Our Lord is angry. You know, we are in trouble or something like that. <laughs> so Isaiah's song of the vineyard unsettles us. It was most unsettling to the first hearers, and its place in Isaiah's prophecy guarantees us that it's going to be unsettling for you and for me as well. And here we are in the drama of Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 2 to 4, the preceding chapters, they represent Isaiah's earlier preaching where the righteous rule of God and the sinful character of the people are on display, but Isaiah 4 ends with an announcement of peace and hope. But Isaiah 5 signals something different in character and tone than that which precedes it. In other words, when we get into Isaiah chapter 5, tectonic plates are beginning to shift in the emerging drama of Isaiah's prophetic witness. And what seemed reformable in the previous chapters has now given way to something that's much more horrific. Judah is hopelessly corrupt, and God's patience has run out. So the move from the end of Isaiah 4 to Isaiah 5 leaves us with a case of a prophetic whiplash. And by the use of irony and metaphor, double entendre and music, Isaiah plays a prophetic bait-and-switch game on his hearers in this song of the vineyard. What begins as a simple ditty, a love song, a song for a friend, something cute. It turns gravely serious in a matter of moments, and we all get caught up in the drama, the drama of judgment. Well, the song itself begins in the first two verses. You can look along in your worship guides at the text. Several features of this song remain unclear. We're really not even sure what kind of song we're dealing with. Is this a song between lovers? Maybe. Is it a song from a friend for a friend? Probably better. Maybe a song that's sung by a friend of the groom at the wedding party. And whatever the song is, we're still left with all kinds of questions. Is this a metaphor? Is this a real vineyard? Is it both at the same time? And the song itself never really clarifies the situation. In other words, Isaiah 5, 1 to 2 remains indeterminate, and its indeterminate character is meant to puzzle the audience. It's intended, we might say, to leave them puzzled, uh, to throw them off. What's, what in the world's Isaiah singing about now? 
Or isn't the song Isaiah singing kind of cute, a little bit entertaining? And here's how it goes. You can look in your text. I'm going to sing a song for my friend about his vineyard. My dear friend had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines. We're talking here about quality grapes, the kind of grapes that are meant to yield a a high quality wine. And then he built a watchtower in the middle of the vineyard, not a hut which would have sufficed, but a tower with stones and walls. Why? So that the vine and the vineyard could be protected. So you get the scene here of the song. All the energies and the resources of the vintner, the owner, are going into the vineyard. And the mood is one of great anticipation. Vintners have to be amazingly patient people, don't they? The effort that goes into a quality product requires long hours and, and many years. I can relate in a small but partial way. I have a a prosciutto ham uh, hanging in my office at home. My brother-in-law, who's here this morning, he raised this pig, built some pens for it, several pigs actually. We killed this pig last October. I smelled like dead pig for a week. Um, I took the ham home, I carved it nicely, salted it, measured out the weight over against curing salts and kosher salts. and cured it for three weeks in the refrigerator. Then I pulled it out, I weighed it, covered it in cheesecloth, hung it on my front porch so that the wind could kind of come through in the cool winter months. And then I took it off and put some lard over the exposed meat, wrapped it in cheesecloth again, and there it is right now in my office, hanging, waiting for about two more months, and we're gonna cut into this thing. And guess what? It might be a mess. If you see me in November with heavy shoulders and a little tear-stained eye, you'll know uh, the hand didn't turn out, did it, Genelette? Yeah, that's the emotional content of Isaiah's vineyard song, this cute song. The owner threw all of his energies and resources into this vineyard. And instead of getting choice grapes, the yield was wild grapes or bad grapes. And if you don't mind a little bit more precise translation this morning, stink fruit, stink berries. How about that for the end of verse 2? And he looked for it to yield choice grapes, but instead, stink fruit. And if the song were left there, its folksy tune fading off around the campfire, we'd laugh. We, we might even ask for it to be sung again now that we know it. Instead of good prosciutto, Genelette got moldy, worm-infested ham. I feel badly for the guy, but it's kind of funny. And no good grapes, just stink fruit. That's a good one, Isaiah. Let, let's hear it again. Then we move to verse 3. Now the shift of the scene happens right before us, and you can tell by the use of language there in the text, and now begins verse 3 and verse 5. These linguistic markers indicate for us as readers of the text that there's a dramatic transition taking place on the scene. The song has come to an end, and now the songwriter is going to explain it. This is what the song is all about. I'm, I'm not really sure how best to capture the mood of this text, but We're about to see a train wreck. We're seeing a group of people singing in the sedan, happy-go-lucky, but the wheels are about to fall off because Isaiah the prophet raises a question, a pointed question. Discern, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, between me and my vineyard. Between me and my vineyard. You go, excuse me, Isaiah, did you just say between me and my vineyard? I thought you were talking about your friend's vineyard. 
I thought you were speaking about somebody else. The shift in person from third person in the first two verses to first person in verse 3 is where the attendant listener begins to squirm in her seat. Because now they recognize this is no longer Isaiah the bard singing around the campfire. This is Isaiah the prophet of God who's now speaking in the first person voice of God himself. Nervous eyes begin to dart around the room. Anxiety begins to fill the air. Why? Because it's not cute anymore. No one's laughing. What more could I have done for my vineyard, God says? What a haunting question. It's a similar question that Micah raises in chapter 6 of his prophecy. What have I done to weary you, Judah? I mean, this is the cry and the outcry of a disappointed and an unsuccessful lover. But it's no ordinary lover. This is God himself, creator of the universe, elector of Israel, savior of the world. It's tragic and it's vulnerable and it's upsetting. God reveals his own deep disappointment and hurt that his loving relationship with his people has come to this moment. It's operatic, the scene. In my uh, pre-kids days, when we did fun things, um, my, my wife and I slept out overnight on the sidewalk in London, outside of the Royal Opera House, to get day of tickets to see my favorite opera, uh, Pagliacci. Placido Domingo was singing the lead role. I mean, this was a big moment. So we slept out on the sidewalk, we got the tickets, and went in, and it just lived up to all the hype. I mean, did you know this opera? I mean, it's, it's a good one. Uh, it's got, you know, betrayal and ends with a murder, just the way it's supposed to, right? So this opera by Leon Convalo is about a traveling troubadour group, traveling clown group. They show up in a small Italian village. They set up their camp. They set up the stage for the evening's clown production, and it's a little Harlequin show. But in the middle of the opera, the lead troubadour, Canio, discovers that his wife has been sleeping around on him with another man. And he is eat up passion and anger and bitterness. And in one of the most famous arias in all of opera, the stage clears and here's Canio trying to get ready for the evening show and he sings a, a song where he tells himself the show has to go on and he's weeping and he pulls out white uh, clown paint and he begins to smear the clown paint onto his face and he looks into the mirror and he says, laugh clown, laugh. He's making fun of himself. He's calling himself to the dramatic moment that's there. And then the aria ends with Canio, white paint, smeared on the face, clown costume in tow, weeping as he leaves the stage. End of scene. That's good stuff. So I might border on the sacrilegious with I hope not going over that border. But Isaiah chapter 5 verses 4 through 6 is God himself with paint on his face weeping in anger at his beloved, at his vineyard, at his choicest possession. What more could I have done for you? He asks in despair. This is the outcry and rage of an impassioned and embittered lover. It's the crazed wife who just found her husband in bed with another woman. I look for justice, mishpach, but I saw bloodshed, mishpach. I looked for righteousness, Zedek, but instead I heard an outcry, Zedekah. I mean, Isaiah is playing with words here. And here's the unstated irony of the text. The same outcry that God hears now that Israel is performing against the oppressed 
is the self-same outcry that he heard from his people in Exodus chapter 3. But now they're Egypt. Or as we heard from the reading last week in Isaiah chapter 1, now Israel is Sodom. And everything's getting turned over. The vineyard's getting ripped up. The protective tower comes tumbling down. I hoed and I plowed and I tended and I watered and I weeded, but no more. All of that's over. This is a frightening text, friends. Its force shakes us to the very core of our being. God is in his vineyard and he's tearing the place apart. What's Isaiah's choice word for the remainder of chapter 5 after the song of the vineyard? It's this word, woe. Woe to those, verse 8. Woe to those, verse 11. Woe to those, verse 18. Woe to those, verse 20 and 21 and 22 and 23. And I would fail you this morning if I didn't let Isaiah's word speak directly to you and to me. Woe to you on the day of God's judgment when the vintner tramples the vineyard and you're left unprotected in the hands of an enraged God. If you've had the privilege of hearing, I've had this privilege several times now, Gil Cracky, our own Gil Cracky, speak on Luther and the Reformation, then you've heard him repeat a phrase describing Luther's, and really more broadly speaking, Reformation thought. This is what Gil says. It's a great turn of phrase. Where would Luther find safety from the God who judges? Answer, only in the same God who saves. Our lectionary readings this morning are spot on. We didn't have the time in the 9 o'clock service to read Psalm 80, but I encourage you to do so on your own if you can. I'm going to make reference to it now. That's part of our liturgical reading this morning, Psalm 80. And Psalm 80 reaches into the same metaphoric barrel of Isaiah chapter 5 describing Israel as a vine that came out of Egypt. Psalm 80, verse 12, uses the same word for walls in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 6. In other words, the reading of Isaiah 5 and Psalm 80 in associative conversation is not merely a lectionary choice, but it emerges from the intention and the language of the psalm itself. In fact, I think Psalm 80 can be rightly understood as the proper response to the people of God in light of the horrific scene of Isaiah chapter 5. What do we do with Isaiah 5? We do Psalm 80. How do we respond to God in Isaiah 5? We respond with these words from Psalm 80. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down and see. Have regard for this line. The repeated refrain of Psalm 80 is this, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine on us that we might be saved. Let your light shine on us. Give us the gift of repentance. Restore us. Repent us. Help us turn back to you, O God, because without you we're hopelessly lost. Without you we're stink fruit at best. Well, how do we have this restoration? by letting the light of his face shine on us. The shining face of God is our only place of safety in this world. Or in the language of our prayer book, only in thee can we live in safety. Safety from what? Safety from ourselves? 
safety from the evil one, even safety from God himself. Hans Urs von Balthasar put the matter clearly. He says, when God hides his face, everything created dies away. And when he again turns his face towards creation, everything awakens to life. Only in thee can we live in safety. Only in you, God. Only in you, Lord Christ. But we're masters of self-deception, aren't we? I'm a master of self-deception. Devising, scheming, angling, hoping in some person or institution or thing where I might find safety. We just take a look at the political climate today, and frankly, any day, and see how powerful a motivating factor fear can be. And I'm not on a high horse this morning. I want to be safe. I want my family safe. I want my children safe. I want them to have advantages and advancement in this world. I want to retire securely. And despite evidence to the contrary, I really wouldn't mind being healthy. Putting on running shoes and going out and doing every once in a while what I hate. Let me be clear. I'm not intimating that 401ks or alarm systems or a good education are of no consequence or some sign of insipid faith. So I'm not talking about being stupid for Jesus' sake. But I'm talking to myself this morning and I'm talking to you this morning about where do we put our trust? Where do we put our faith? Because as Johnny Cash reminds us, the man is coming around. And it's only in thee we can live in safety. Look down, O Lord, says the psalmist, and have regard for your vine. It matters that Jesus said in John chapter 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. Isn't that something to see in light of our readings? The vineyard that became such a disappointment to God in Isaiah 5 and the whole history of Israel becomes identified in John's gospel with Jesus himself. Jesus as the vineyard of God's judgment. For what other is the cross than God tearing up his choicest vineyard? And what other is the resurrection from the dead than the vineyard of God's own son growing and bearing the good fruit of the gospel throughout the whole world? Do you know where safety is found? Our place in Christ, our place in the vine, gives us safety fruit and wine, and true safety are found in more than abundance. Can I ask you this morning, as I ask myself, where do you feel most safe, ultimately safe? Because our prayer book is right. Only in thee can we live in safety.